Recovery. Uh, welcome to those of you joining us from home. Welcome to those of you in the room. Special welcome to those of you who are here for the first time or visiting. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. My name is Rich Joy, and I'm Calvary's interim pastor, and I'm always happy to be in the house of the Lord with you guys today. We've been asking the question over the last few weeks, what is church? And trying to answer what does that mean for us today here at Calvary and these days in our world and what church should look like and what are the non-negotiables that make up a church and what are the things that fall in the category of style and preference. And we've been using for our guide a passage from the second chapter of Acts that describes the first gathering of Christ followers after Jesus died and rose from the dead and the word of Jesus spread People started following him and meeting in the temple. Several thousand people, actually, first megachurch recorded in the Bible. We've been looking at this passage to say, what will this teach us about answering this question, what is church? It's interesting what it doesn't say. I've mentioned this before. When I read a passage in the Bible, I often ask myself the question, what does it not say? Because we can learn as much from what it doesn't say as what it does say. And what you do not find in this passage is anything that talks about building plans or blueprints or organizational charts or programs or worship styles, none of that factors in. So as we, we've been reading this same passage every week, we've been pulling out the essentials of what does this passage tell us church is. The last four weeks, we've been in the first line of this passage that said these people, this group, they were devoted to talks about what they were committed to, what they were loyal to, what they loved, what was a priority, what was important to them. They were devoted to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. We're going to stay in this passage a few more weeks and say, what else does this passage teach us? So I'm going to read it. We've started off reading it every week. So uh, here it goes again, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, this group of Christ followers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's still a lot more in this passage we can pull out. I told you I was going to give you a one-week warning when I got to the point where I was going to talk about giving all your things away. This is your one-week warning. That's next week. So make sure you are here next week. It's going to be a very important message from this passage. This week, I want to tell you what jumps out at me this week. As I was reading through this, there was one word that just grabbed my brain and would not let go. It was the word all. Three letters, A-L-L. -L. But it's a profound part of this passage. It says they, it says everyone, it says all, it says they. And it's talking about a pretty big group of people. I had mentioned that 3,000 people right before this passage decided to follow Jesus, in addition to those who already were. The interesting thing about this word all in the Greek is it means a, a kind of a different thing. There's a different flavor to it than the way we might use the word all. If I said all of us are in the room, I'm thinking of a group. I'm thinking of a mass. It's like, here we are, all in the room. That tends to be how I think of the word all. But this word all, the Greek word pas, P-A-S, it actually has a different 
uh, nuance to it. It means each and every part. So when this passage says all of them were together, it says it really means each and every one of them. There's a focus on the individual as part of the group. The emphasis of that whole picture could be said like this, one piece at a time. So 3,000 people had just joined, but this all that the passage starts with, the Greek word means one at a time. It means each one, each and every one. You're viewing the whole in terms of the individual parts. So now if I use that word, and I say, all of us are in the room. All of us are here. We're all sitting in the room. What I'm really saying is you are, and 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 you are. Each and every one of us, all of us together, one at a time, are in this room. And isn't that the beauty of God's family and how we've been talking about how it works? When we come together in community, we're individuals, but we're part of a group. And I quoted my brilliant wife a few weeks ago. I'm going to do it again. She said it like this, that my relationship with Jesus is personal, but it's not individual. We tend to make it individual, think it's all about me and Jesus, me and Jesus. We're like this. It's like this personally. Jesus knows me. He knows my heart. He knows who I am. He knows my experiences. The Bible says he knows every hair on my head. And they're easier to count these days than they used to be. <laughs> he knows every word while it's on my tongue. He knows me personally. But he doesn't know me individually. He knows me in the context of his family. Just like in the context of my family. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a cousin. My family knows me personally in the context of that. That's what this all means. And I love this because this is a description of the, the church. This is a great description of the church. In several other places, the church is compared to the body of Christ. I want to read that one of those to you. Romans 12, verses 4 through 5. Paul is writing to the Roman church, and he says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This passage is saying we're like a body, and we've thrown this phrase around, we're the body of Christ. But I want us to think today about a body and how a body works. I have fingers. I have opposable thumbs. I can do amazing things with my hands. This is part of my body. But I can't do a thing with my hands if I don't have a wrist and a forearm and an upper arm and a shoulder that connects all that together to the rest of my body. These parts need these parts who need these parts who need this part, and so on. All together, we're the body of Christ. But if I use that Greek word, I would say, but individually, we are all part of it. Each and every one of us is a part of the body. Together, we are all the body of Christ. And I love that the body compares the church, uh, that the um, scripture compares the church to a human body and not um, to an ecosystem or an organizational chart or a corporation or a system of rules that the scripture chooses to compare us to a body with parts that are interrelated, that need each other, that perform a valuable function together when all the parts do their part. I'm going to show you another one. 1 Corinthians 12. The entire chapter, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but if you want to read it at home later, this is a great chapter to describe how the church should work. I'm just going to read parts of it. 
1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. You see what it, you get what it's saying there? It's saying the foot can't say, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong. But sometimes we do that in church. We say, well, I, I can't do what Rich does, or I don't have a voice, I can't sing like Luke. I'm not a musician, I'm not a speaker, I'm not a teacher, therefore I'm not a part of the body. Oh no, I am not letting you get away with that. You are part of the body and you have a part and God has given you a part to play. Sometimes we look around and say, because I'm not that, I'm not anything. Or because I'm not that, I'm not this. This says, don't fall into that trap. God has designed you just like he designed every body part. He designed you to be a part. And he chose where to place you and what your part should be. And when you do your part, you become a contributing member of the body of Christ. And it gives God great pleasure. Where was I? Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. It's still part of the body, even if it has convinced itself it's not. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, here's the part I was paraphrasing before. Look at this, because this speaks directly to you. In fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. We can look at a human body, and that makes sense to us. He designed this foot and this ankle to operate a certain way. He placed it here so it would support my leg and the rest of my body. We can look at the body and say, of course God did that. He designed it. He placed it right where he wanted it. But we have to make the transfer to the spiritual application of what does this mean in church and the practical application of what does this mean in church. It means God did the same thing. He, desi he designed the body. He chooses the parts. He designs you a certain way and places you right where he wants you to be. The passage in 1 Corinthians 12 and a couple of others talk about spiritual gifts. And that's going to be a topic for another day. We can't get there today. But just very quickly, what the Bible says is that you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have come to him and declared him your Lord, recognized his sacrifice on the cross for you, accepted his forgiveness, and have a new life, a regenerated heart in him, and you are following him. The Bible says that God, on top of everything he's done for you, gives you a spiritual gift. A gift like teaching, or helps, or administration. Or um, I'm, I, I just lost the whole rest of the list in my head. We're going to do it another day. But God has given spiritual gifts. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have one. God has given it to you for a purpose. And the purpose is so you will have something to contribute when we come together as a body. You are a part. And you have a part to play. And every part matters. Every part matters. Every part of the body is important. That's what this next passage says. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 27. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. We cannot look around and say, well, we don't really need that or that person or that job done or, or that role. We can get along without that. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. One of the ways this passage speaks to the church today is that we have fallen into some of the same mindset that our whole world has. We, have, we, we can tend to celebritize our church. We can elevate the people who are seen publicly, the, the teachers and the preachers and the speakers. You see me up here every week, nearly every Sunday, opening the Word of God, teaching and, and um, admonishing and encouraging and trying to bring insight. And you might conclude by watching me up here every week that Rich's part is more important than other people's parts. Absolutely not, and I will be the first one to tell you that. God says every part in the body and every place he puts it, every one of you is just as important. That's the all part, each and every one. We do it with worship leaders. Now that we're a global community and communication connects us all over the world, we can have a tendency to take worship leaders that we really love and treat them like celebrities. And I love that we're globally connected. I love knowing that the church of God stretches around the world, but we have to be really careful not to give extra honor to the parts that we easily see and forget about the parts we don't. This passage says God has given this body a lot of parts, and you don't see most of them. You don't see my liver, thankfully, my kidney, my stomach. You don't see my veins. You don't see my nerves, my nervous system. All those parts matter. You don't see my bone marrow. But if I didn't have those things, I'd be a blob of jelly on the stage here, unable to do my part. And every part matters. This passage says, don't forget to pay attention and honor the parts that are less visible. Because it's very easy to honor the parts that are more visible. And I will tell you, having served in a more visible role in the church for many, many years, I already get a lot of attention because I'm here where you can see me. I don't need any more. In fact, too much attention is dangerous. We have to make sure we're paying attention and valuing the parts of the body that we don't see. I'm going to give you a crazy explanation of why I think that works like that, and I'm going to use the body. My part, my part here at Calvary and my part in other um, communities has been, if I could say what my body part is, is I'm a mouth. I get up here and I go, <laughs> you, you, you know what just popped into my head? <laughs> Do you remember the movie Hitch from like years ago? Will Smith played the, the guy Hitch and he tried to match people up. There's a point in the movie where he describes his role and he does exactly that. He goes, <laughs> that's me, I'm the mouth. <laughs> Um, but I, I, so I get up here and I say things. And I, to be serious, um, it is an incredible, incredible blessing to be able to take the Word of God and teach it. I, I believe that's what God has designed me for. I believe that's my part. 
That's not a boast in me. That's what God has given me to do. In fact, I gain so much benefit from it. I get so blessed. I feel God's pleasure when I teach his word because I feel like I'm doing what God wants me to do. It's like a parent who watches a child doing what they were meant to do. And you just feel so much pleasure. You know, I feel that. That's my reward. That's my recognition. But this mouth, this mouth would be totally useless without the rest of the body parts. This mouth cannot produce a single sound without a bunch of other parts doing their part. Starts maybe with the diaphragm. My diaphragm has to expand and contract. That muscle's got to do its work so that it can open and close my lungs and produce a blast of air that comes up my esophagus, passes through my vocal cords, which vibrate, and if that all works properly, sounds come out. Uh. See how that works? The mouth doing its part. If I want to change that sound into something uh, like speech, I need more parts. Now I need lips and tongue and teeth and nasal cavity. All of those working together to turn that into some kind of a, a recognizable sound like speech. Now, if we want it to be intelligible. That's a whole different... I don't even know how to explain that. In order for the mouth to work, it needs the rest of the parts to do their job. How does that... Relate to the church? If you got here at 8 o'clock this morning like I did, you would see a man named Bob with a ladder under one arm and three cameras under the other, lugging them around, setting these cameras up. Right here, see these cameras? Without those cameras, folks, you at home would not see me. You wouldn't have heard Luke and the worship team. You wouldn't be able to connect in to what's going on here. Without Bob here at 8 o'clock, every Sunday, setting those cameras up. How many of you saw Bob? Probably none of you. You got here after that. And David, he was up here plugging in wires and, and getting things ready for the, the worship team. And the worship team got here early. Now, you saw them. You saw they, they led us. But they were here on Thursday night rehearsing. We didn't see that happening. That's all behind the scenes. And then we have slides up. Somebody made those. Somebody put those together. And a couple of people, Debbie and Isaac, they sit up there in a chair and they change the slides so that we can keep up with what Rich is reading and the songs we're singing. You don't see them. And that's just what's happening in the room at the moment. Did you pick up a bulletin, a program on the way in? During the week, somebody sat down and said, hmm, what do people need to know this week? How can I write this in a concise way and lay it out so they can get it all in one document? Print it. Somebody else stuck it in the holder so when you walked in, you could grab it out and have one. There are so many things that happen in the church behind the scenes. So little of what happens in the church is what we see. Most of what happens in the church, we don't even see. And I'm just describing a few things that impact Sunday morning. Not all the other things the church does during the week. And this passage that I just read said, honor those. Honor those parts that you don't see. Somebody set the chair up that you're sitting in this morning. Somebody will put it away after you leave because there'll be another event in here. Somebody came in and set up a hot tub for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy. I was cold. I can't wait till they get the jets running and I can get in there. Seriously, we have a baptism today. I'm very excited about it. Um, after I'm, I'm done sharing a few more thoughts, we're going to have a baptism celebration. But that meant somebody had to get here and, and bring this out of the closet. I, I found out this morning, this is very cool. This thing comes, it's like, in, I said, where do you store this? And I was told, it's like Legos. 
And they put it together, and they put the thing over it, and they fill it up with water. And that's so cool. We can have a baptism here. But somebody had to get here a day or two ago and get all that out of the closet and set it all up and put the water in it. And after we're all done and we go home, someone's going to come here and empty the water out and dry off all the parts and put them back in the closet till the next time. Do we see that? No. But the Bible says, honor that. Every part matters. The church can't do its job unless every part does its part. So what does that mean for you? You matter. And you are a part. And you have to do your part. I want to show you a picture. It's from probably, it was way overused in the 90s. It's old, it's cliche, but it does make a point, so I'm bringing it back three, four decades later, however long ago that was. Let me show you the picture of this iceberg. How many people have seen this picture of this iceberg before? You know, with the, oh, you only see a little above, and you see all that below. That's the point, actually. When you see, if you were out on the sea, ocean, wherever these icebergs are, you would see this part of the iceberg, and it would look huge and massive, and you'd say, wow, look at the size of that iceberg. Took down a ship the size of the Titanic. That thing is incredible. It's amazing. Look how beautiful it is. Look at all the the facets on it, and we would be in awe of this iceberg. And if we said iceberg, we would think iceberg. We would picture this. This is an iceberg. But actually, that's only about 10% of the iceberg. 90% of it's underwater. The 90% that's underwater is the reason 10% of it sticks out. It's the size and the density and the mass and the weight and all the factors in this decide where that thing's going to float. If it was a ping pong ball and you threw it on the water, it would float on top. But because it's this massive ice rock, it starts to sink below the surface And everything down here is the reason you have that up there. 90% of it's underwater. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that profound? (laughs) But it's true. And it's true here in the church. 90% of what happens in the church here happens underwater. It's not seen. We don't know. And we easily forget that someone set my chair up. Someone put a program in the stand so that I could have it. When it's communion day, somebody put all the communion cups out. Someone's going to clean them up. During the week, someone's setting up a room so a men's group could meet. Someone's setting up a room so uh, mops can meet, the mothers of preschool students. Someone's setting up a room for prayer. Someone planned something so they could lead that prayer so that when I go, there's some leadership there to help me pray. Someone's sitting in the office so if I call, they'll answer the phone. There are all these parts that happen all around the church, and we don't see them all because they're all so much behind the scenes. So this has, um, it has application for each one of us, this, get, to get back to this word all. This word all doesn't mean some um, nameless mass of people. It means each and every individual. So if I say we are all the church, and if I say we are all the body of Christ, what I'm saying is you are, and 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 you are, all the way around the room. If I could make eye contact with every one of you, I would say, you are part of the all, and you have a part to play. We were meant to contribute to the body of Christ. We were meant to participate. We were meant to be a part of it. Church was never intended to be a spectator sport. Church was never intended, your church experience was never intended 
to be as, um, as little as come in here, sit in a seat, and go home. This is going to sound harsh, and I don't mean it to sound harsh. Someone else said it, I'll blame them, but it really makes a lot of sense. The Bible says we're bought with, the, with his blood, that Jesus bought us with his blood. But what he did not die to purchase for you was a chair. Jesus did not die to buy you a seat so that you would have a place to sit when you came to church. He bought you. He redeemed your soul. He purchased you so that you could become a part of his body, so that you would have a place to belong, so that you would have a place to have a purpose and a function and contribute and serve the needs and the good of other people. That's what he purchased. He didn't purchase us to sit and watch. He purchased us to be part of his body. And that's what this passage says here, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. I love that in the same chapter, talking about the body, it also mentions baptism because we have a baptism today. That passage I just read says, you were bought with his blood, you were redeemed, you were baptized, where? Into his body. That by his, his love, by his sacrifice, by his purchase on the cross, he brings you into his body. He baptizes you in his name. We're going to celebrate baptism. We're getting very close. I just want to read two more passages about baptism explain what it is while we do it, and then we'll be ready to celebrate that. The passage I read at the start about uh, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, that was Acts 2.42. Right before that would be Acts 2.41. It says this, Acts 2.41. Those who accepted his message, Peter had preached to a big group of people about Jesus um, dying and, and rising again and being the Son of God, and redeeming our sins. And it says this, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This baptized group of people became a part of that all that formed the body of Christ. Romans 6, verses 3 through 7 says this about baptism. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now there are a lot of words in there I want to boil down what it says about baptism. It's comparing baptism to dying and rising again. And I did that motion because that's what we do when we baptize. We're going to have five people come up to the pool today, and they're going to go underwater, and they're going to come back up. And the underwater represents dying to their sins, dying to their old ways, dying to themselves. And the coming up out of the water represents living for Jesus. This is the symbolic action of death and resurrection. That's what baptism is. It's the old way dies. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come. Baptism doesn't do that to you. It represents what Jesus did for you. 
that we die to ourselves and we live to him. And then we do it in water because it represents a cleansing, a washing. We talk about Jesus forgiving our sins. He died on the cross. He shed his blood so that our sins, our wrongs, our guilt, our shame could all be washed away. When we go into the baptism pool under the water, it represents that washing. You might think about it like this. We go in soiled. We come out clean. The water is also symbolic. That water cannot wash your heart. It cannot get there. Jesus washes your heart. Jesus cleanses your soul. The water represents that act that Jesus already did. We go in the water, soiled, we come out clean. We go in the water, we die to ourselves. We come up resurrected. That's what that passage is saying. That's what baptism represents. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't forgive you of your sins. Baptism doesn't make you a better person. Baptism tells the world what Jesus did for you. That he forgave you and cleansed you and raising you up to new life. I do want to take a moment and say why that's different from dedication. A few weeks back, we had child dedication here where parents came up with their child. They brought their child before the church, and they said, we thank God for this child, and we recognize that God is the giver of life, and we want to commit ourselves to raising our child in the ways of Jesus so that when he or she gets old enough, they'll choose to follow him too. Hope, the hope for those parents as they raise their child in the faith is that one day their child will choose Jesus, call him Lord and Savior, and choose to go into this pool to be baptized. I was baptized as a baby. I grew up um, in a Methodist tradition, and my parents' tradition was to baptize babies in the church. They chose to have me baptized, uh, which was fine, except I didn't know anything about it at the time. They baptized me. It was an expression of what they wanted for me. When I was 17 years old, I realized that this Jesus that the church talked about was actually real, that he really did die on a cross. He really did die for me, and that he loves me. And he would forgive me if I would come to him and humble myself before him and ask him for forgiveness and new life and say, I will follow you as my Lord and Savior. And at that point, at 18 years old, I chose to go in the waters of baptism to show people this is what Jesus has done for me. That's how those two events work together. If we're dedicating a child, we're reflecting the heart and faith and desires of the parent, which is a good thing. But when we're Celebrating baptism, we're reflecting the choice the individual has made for themselves to say, this is what Jesus has done for me. So that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to call our worship team back up here. They're going to lead us in a song called 10,000 Reasons. And I want to tell you the reason why we're doing 10,000 Reasons. Because if you were here last week, you'd say, hey, we just did that song last week. Well, Renee, one of the people being baptized today, who's sitting right over there, she was here last week, and she said, 10,000 reasons, I love that song. Oh, can we do it next week? That would be so special to me. And Renee's being baptized today. And she happened to mention it to Heidi, who mentioned it to me, and I mentioned it to Luke. And Luke said, what a great idea. Let's do the song. So we're doing 10,000 reasons today because it's so significant to Renee, but it's also significant to the rest of us that we would have at least 10,000 reasons why we could bless the Lord and lift up his name celebrate. So uh, Luke and the team are going to lead us through 10,000 reasons. We're going to get to watch a very cool video of the people who are being baptized, sharing a little bit about why they're being baptized, and then after that we'll all meet right back here at the pool.